Hello and welcome to To The Edge and Beyond, a series that makes sense of powerful innovation for real-world applications. It's brought to you by the Intel Internet of Things Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of To The Edge and Beyond, the series that makes sense of use cases across industries, brought to you by the Intel Internet of Things Group. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And again, folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the show. Before we get into the core dialogue of today's discussion, make sure that you're heading to our core website, intel.com, for a generalized look at all of our solutions, services, and also some thought leadership on how we're innovating in various industries, especially in the Internet of Things world. You can also find more episodes of To The Edge and Beyond on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button. You'll have a full catalog of previous conversations, plus notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of the show, we're going to be digging into the cross sections of two major technologies and digital transformations that are shaping both industrial and commercial workflows. And that would be artificial intelligence at the edge. More high workload industries, specifically in manufacturing, mission critical systems, and data management are pushing computation to the edge. And in turn, they're creating new workflows that require massive data analysis and intake. So we wanted to pose the question, what role is AI taking on in assuaging some of the friction of these new workloads and data analyses. We're here to give us an overview of what is defining and redefining the edge and how AI is elevating what workflows are even possible at the edge is today's guest. I'm pleased to welcome Rita Uhebi. She's senior principal engineer with Intel's Internet of Things group, specifically in the industrial solutions division. Rita, great to have you on. How are you doing? Good. How about you, Daniel? Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Before we get into the meat of the conversation, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Um, you know, I, I guess walk us through your uh, career, specifically how it intersects with IoT work and AI work, uh, and how that intersects with today's conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is really fascinating that uh, AI. AI at the edge is taking on such a new life. And it feels to me sometimes that perhaps my middle name, I should adopt Edge AI as my middle name because in a previous life, a very long time ago, I was an AI uh, engineer. I did a lot of work in what used to be called, and I'm dating myself right now, neural networks. Uh, and then, you know, that down, went downhill, as we all know. Um, and I moved into a new love of mine, which is distributed networking. And I was so enamored in it that I pursued a PhD in the space. Um, I have been at Intel for 15 years. I joined after my PhD. And for a while, I was focused on distributed networking and wireless sensor networks and so on. Uh, but as IoT started becoming more and more ubiquitous and available everywhere and providing such awesome applications, whether factories or not, um, all of a sudden, AI at the edge became a thing. And I felt like, oh my goodness, this is so awesome because us technologists, sometimes we jump between areas, um, but this is exactly the intersection of the two areas that are my love. Um, so here I am today, I'm at, in our industrial solutions division, like you mentioned, I work with factories to bring solutions uh, that would help solve some of their pain points. 
using AI at the edge. Um, and it has been an amazing adventure. Uh, I have visited factories worldwide. I have worked with domain experts um, and it has been eye-opening eye for me. Um, you know, we all have seen either a child we know um, or even uh, videos of kids standing in front of a, a washing machine or a dryer and watching it turn over and over again. That's how I feel every time I visit a factory and work with them on their problems and figure out how we can help them bringing a solution of both software and hardware. I love that. And uh, I appreciate you giving us the context, too, of a lot of your on the ground work, the fact that you are interfacing directly with uh, today's most uh, pressing workflows and needs at the edge, I think, is uh, going to give us that necessary perspective today. So looking forward to getting into it. Let's go ahead and do just that. So, again, we're talking AI at the edge and you know, I think we have to start by defining what is meant by the edge, uh, not only because there's still some confusion around the edge, but also it's being constantly redefined by new workflows, new use cases. And honestly, as the edge gets more capable, the definition expands, right? So go ahead and define in your view um, and based on your work, what should we be using to frame the edge for today's conversation? Actually, my own personal definition is a very inclusive definition. And it's funny that we start with the definition because for a while, I remember getting into meetings with large customers or small customers or any, any type of combination. And we would start talking about the edge and half an hour through that conversation, someone would say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What's your definition of edge? We used to crack this joke about, is your edge my edge? <laughs> uh, to me, as a technologist, business people might disagree, might see it depending on their business, but really the edge is any kind of technology that is not in the cloud. Uh, so if I'm looking at it from any enterprise perspective, whether this enterprise is a you know small to medium business, uh, whether it's a factory, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a retail store, anything that exists within their boundaries, um, the boundaries, the physical boundaries, or right now, you know, since a lot of us are working from home, the virtual boundaries, um, anything that is also part of, you know, their on-site um, data center, quote unquote, on-site is, is an edge. Um, anything that is not a cluster somewhere in the cloud um, that you have to, you know, send, send packets to and get packets from, is an edge. And that definition means in places like factories, in places like smart homes, in places like smart cities, we'll include the sensors, we'll, we'll include that robotic arm, not just the robotic arm, but also like the sensors and motors embedded in a robotic arm. Um, we'll include things like if you have a smart home appliance, um, all of these become part of the edge. So. This is a nice boundary because it, it says, okay, everything that you can basically put your virtual arms around. So if the edge includes most anything that isn't in the cloud, why would you say we need to have computing workflows and technologies specifically for the edge, right? What's the use case here? And um, you know, what new use cases is edge computing needing to address? Yeah, that's actually really interesting because a lot of people might even add to what you asked me, why? Why would we even need an edge or need to have discussions about the edge? 
uh, isn't it easier to just send all the data somewhere and you know crunch the numbers and produce a good result? You can maintain it, you can figure out power and so on and so forth. And in reality, there are three restrictions today for sending all packets to the cloud. I'm not saying you know the cloud doesn't have a lot of relevance. We still count too much, <laughs> perhaps, or a lot on the cloud and the technologies in the cloud. But the edge is important for three reasons. Um, the first one is latency. If you are a factory and you need to figure out if the product you just produced has a defect, or if you are a health professional and you need AI to give you advice, you're perhaps in an operating room or you are in an emergency department and you need advice, you don't have time to wait for your traffic, to wait for your data to get packaged, sent across the world, or even sent you know, across the street to a server to crunch the numbers and send it back. So this is latency. This is the first one um, that you need to actually bring compute close to where you need the data and the decision to happen. And that's an interesting concept. Um, so that's one. The second one is sometimes it's just a lot of data and moving it across the network is cost prohibitive, right? Not everybody, not every little application is going to run fiber optics. Um, it's, it's sometimes a, you know, it's a money decision uh, to bring compute close. And the last one is obviously privacy. Uh, maybe you don't want to send these data outside your, your virtual walls or physical walls. Um, because there might be some privacy considerations. You might be nervous about further um, putting yourself at a risk of attacks or, or hacking incidents or what have you. So you want to keep that data internally. Um, and it's, it's really actually an interesting mind shift because I remember a, a decade or so ago when everybody was saying, you know, this compute is too complicated. Why don't we just send all the data to the cloud and a rack of servers will basically take care of this data and send us results back. And that is interesting because if you think about it, at that point in time, we were valuing compute resources more than data. And now that balance has shifted. We are valuing data more to the extent that we're bringing compute to the data. Um, and that is why we are seeing the rise of the edge. How critical is, in your view, edge computing going to be to meet society's needs of today and tomorrow, whether that's uh, to meet some of the digital innovations happening at the home, whether that's at an industrial level or even at the city scale, at a municipal level? Yeah, uh, this is an, a really interesting point. Um, I think if you look at what happened in academia, these concepts of pervasive computing where you know, you're going to walk into a room and everything is going to be digitized around you. You're not going to even feel there is technology. We've been talking about it as science fiction. In reality, it's happening already. Um, so many items around us have some form of a CPU, have compute. Um, I bought a coffee machine last year and it came with a CPU inside it. So it is fascinating. It's already happening for us as humans everywhere, not just for a factory or um, you know hospitals and, and so on. Um, so it is happening anywhere around us and we are counting more and more on it. As a matter of fact, I challenge um, all of our listeners 
to go about more than three hours bef before they use some form of edge technology <laughs> and use AI more particularly. Um, I mean, I, I find myself really challenged, by the way, at getting from point A to point B without some form of assistance. Um, I've come, you know, to rely on um, any any kind of map services that will get me from point A to point B. But that's not it, right? Even when we, um, you know, want to entertain ourselves, want to watch something, AI is the one who's driving those recommendations. AI is helping me find my, you know, next restaurants um, to order food from. Uh, so many things AI and Edge are bringing to us front and center. And to be honest, we're no longer even thinking about it. So that is really pervasive. It might not have happened yet, you know, in the walls, maybe soon, um, but at least it has happened in a very abstract way where we're using it and not thinking about it. Before we connect the dots more between AI and computing at the edge, let's talk more about how AI itself as a technology has changed over the years. And I think that'll give us a better context for why it's become so useful. So give our audience that breakdown. How has AI technology, both its ability to learn and also its ability to execute on its tasks, how have both of those factors improved in recent years? And how has the evolution of AI become increasingly applicable in, in so many aspects of our daily lives? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you might have to stop me from talking because I can talk for hours about AI. <laughs> uh, That's a good problem to have. Good problem to have. <laughs> uh, AI, I think, you know, it's, it's not a surprise that it has changed a lot of things in our lives. Um, you know, the, the seminal paper that came out of Google around deep learning is obviously something that a lot of people in, in the AI space is aware of and, and the big aha moment was to be able to train a piece of software using pictures of cats and dogs, right? And then show new pictures of cats and dogs. And all of a sudden, that AI algorithm was able to um, separate cats from dogs with a very high accuracy. I mean, that was a, a big breakthrough, right? All you had to do with these pictures, kind of like you're teaching a toddler. And then the toddler says, yeah, I got it. No big deal. And now show me new ones and I can, I can accurately... Um, tell you which one is a cat, which one is a dog. Not that that work was not amazing in seminal. Obviously it was. It has gone a long way from there, right? Um, so many new innovations are happening every day. Um, and if we start thinking about um, all the innovation that's happening in the medical community, for example, a lot of it is being driven today by AI. AI is assisting people in a lot of different domains. And um, just like computer science, you know, if you think about it four or five uh, decades ago, uh, used to be a niche science. And then all of a sudden it became an enabling technology for everybody. Um, so is AI doing today? Um, and I think the beauty of it is that this time, the technology and the technologists, we are all delivering on our promises. Why are we now delivering? Why we didn't deliver, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and, and now things are happening. Few things. First of all, the technology had enough time to mature. Uh, more people were able to collaborate and, and work on it. Obviously, uh, you know, it, it all starts with, with actual human intelligence. Um, however, uh, compute has become way more powerful, more sophisticated. If we look on the market today, there are so many different uh, CPUs and GPUs and accelerators that are able to deliver very complex computations in a very short period of time. So that is essential. 
And the third one, uh, which is the fuel that feeds AI, is data. Um, so we have a lot of data. A lot of data has been collected. A lot of data across domains have been collected. But not just that. We can't scale if we can collect more data. And it has become one of those snowball effects where the more you get value out of AI, the more you are motivated to collect more data. And the more you collect more data, the more you get value out of it. So it has become this really awesome cycle, positive, constructive cycle that we are right now in. Um, not to say that there aren't still some very hard challenges for AI. Um, there are new challenges that weren't, you know, um, on the radar uh, a few two years ago and uh, new ways that AI should expand. But really this idea that compute has become available, compute is powerful, data is there and compute is getting pushed to the edge. That has been this beautiful marriage and positive positive outcomes is coming out of it. It's like, you know, AI plus plus, <laughs> plus one with every interaction. <laughs> Love it. And, uh, you know, a part of that is advances in the learning methodologies for AI. You know, we've seen progressions through different kinds of learning methods uh, for AI again. So can you give us just sort of a, a, a base level summary of the differences and how they connect with our conversation today, right? So I'm going to use an example. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> to walk us through these different terminology um, and, and decipher them. So let's take a factory. Factory is kind of my bread and butter um, for for AI in a factory, and let's 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 assume that this factory is making a product for kicks and giggles. Let's say this product is a car. Okay, so the factory is assembling a car, um, and there are a bunch of robots who are putting this car together. Maybe they are using welding, they're using screwdrivers. Every robot has a specialized task. They have a tool attached to them, and they are assembling this car. Typically, it's not it's not random, right? It is a very well-defined process that you are following. It also has a lot of physicality. It's not, you know, abstracted in the cloud. It's, you have physical robots assembling a physical car. There is a certain sequence that they need to follow and they are divided into cells. You divide them into cells because it's easier to troubleshoot and be able to debug. It's, you know, it appeals to us as computer scientists <laughs> to divide them into cells. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so they are divided into cells. Now let's say this car is receiving some form uh, of a process. Let's say uh, this is the one of the cells that does screw driving, um, attaches a whole bunch of screws. Maybe you have 10 robots inside it and each robot has five screws. Every time the cars get in there, they need to put those five screws in it. Great. So those robots are working in peril. They could be working together. And if they are, we call them collaborative. Okay, and then any AI attached to them will become collaborative AI because they're they're kind of talking to each other, but they don't have to. Just to keep it simple, let's assume you know the car is not moving. They need they don't need to collaborate. Each one of them has a screwdriver. They're attaching those screws to the car. Awesome. Let's say I am robot one. If as I'm attaching those screws, I realize there is something wrong that happened in the previous cell, and my first screw went in at an angle. It's going to be problematic if I continue working, right? The rest of my operations, of my processes might be faulty. Great. I can learn that and perhaps adjust or raise an alarm or depending on what the error is, adjust the rest of my processes. 
or I can also tell my other friends in the same cell, right? And then maybe I will adjust on the second operation. And now my adjustment results in a good operation. So what I do is I tell everyone, hey, not only our previous configuration is going to cause problems, but here is another one that AI taught me what to do. And now it's working. It's no longer causing problem. And you can see how they're bouncing off each other. It's, if you think about it, it's really cool because it's exactly like us humans sitting in one room and saying, oh, hey, Daniel, don't do this, right? Um, I just tried it and, and it caused problem. Um, so this is distributed learning. They are learning from each other and they are exchanging that learning as well. Now, let's talk about continuous learning. Continuous learning. So in this example, Robot1 had a set of configurations that they can choose from, right? Maybe, you know, uh, change the entry angle and that would help you so that the process is better or, or whatever it is, or change the torque, you know, go at it a little slower. And then, you know, the, the actual operation will be successful. Continuous learning is what if I didn't have all those other configurations? What if I had one and it started to fail? Now I should be um, figuring out what else I can do in order to improve on the next operation. Imagine in, in certain places where you want to be as fast as possible, but also produce the best product. And it's a trade-off, right? Where is that sweet spot where you're still producing high quality products, but as much as you can? And this is where you can see continuous learning where these robots are continuously getting better at what they are doing. Um, the concept of continuous learning also happens in another space called transfer learning, where sometimes you get a bunch of cameras and you're watching a human expert doing something. You have them in a very controlled place, maybe doing some, you know, high voltage welding. Um, and you have them, you know, doing it once or twice when you have cameras and sensors watching them. And now you hand over all this data to the robot and you say, robot, mimic that human, but you can also get better. The robot doesn't need to do that. So all of these continuous learning and transfer learning are interesting because then you're really letting the AI shine, letting the AI learn as time goes on. Um, federated learning is a little different and it's actually really interesting. The idea of federated learning is you might have multiple entities who have different data different data sets. And these different data sets, there is power in pulling it together, but there might be considerations where you cannot. Maybe it's the privacy of your patients. Um, so you cannot put, you know, if, if you are in a certain medical hospital, um, you can't just pull your data freely with another medical hospital, even if you want to. So what you would want to do is figure out a way to pull that data into sandboxes and have federated learning, have an AI algo learn from the different data sets, but anonymize the results. So you can't track back into that data set. Um, and uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners might be aware of this. There are today systems, for example, for cancer treatment, where you can fill some information about your patient if you're a medical doctor, such as demographics, um, such as some um, important features of the case of that particular patient, and you will get a recommendation from an AI system for the best 
um, uh, actions for the best um, plan that you're going to create for for healing and helping that patient based on the data of others. Um, what what would work, for example, um, for a 50 year old. Uh, African-American woman is going to be different than what would work for a 20, 20 year old uh, um, white male, uh, white man, um, and so on and so forth, in addition to the characteristics of that patient. So allowing, creating a system for federated learning where you can have multiple data sets and an AI that can learn from them and be able to provide that service back is, is a very interesting uh, field. Now, obviously, in certain use cases, federated learning is has few hurdles. Um, for example, uh, you know, if you look at factories, if you have first tier and second tier factories in a certain domain, there is a lot of competition. They're probably not going to pull their data sets uh, together. Um, the first tier might always feel that they have a better data set, so it's not an equal footing, and there aren't incentives of saving lives um, that you have in the medical community. So different domains, you'll find, you know, different tugs on different concepts of AI, um, but it's really fascinating. I mean, I, I can, like I said, geek out for hours about it. Let's tie it back now to AI at the edge, right? Why is AI winning out as the supporting technology for the edge? You already gave us some specific industry examples and workflows, but if you had to summarize, then what is validating its in-practice use? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And, um, you know, and the, the elephant in the room, especially when we're talking about factories, is a lot of people view AI as it's going to kick them out of a job. Um, it's going to replace them. And in reality, that's that's not how I see it. I see AI as assisting humans and going where, where no human can go today. Um, and it's, it's an interesting one. As a matter of fact, you know, in my five years, um, in our industrial solutions division, I visited a lot of factories worldwide. And almost every time I went to a new factory, um, I would meet a bunch of people. And then the moment that what we call the domain experts, uh, so the control engineers, the factory operators, um, the moment I would get introduced to them, there was always a little suspicion that I faced, right? They're like, yeah, mm -hmm, not sure we like her. She's here to get rid of me or my people or, you know, our team. It was fascinating to me because in almost every case, when we engaged with these factories, I ended up becoming the best friend. <laughs> that, that same person, you know, a few months later would consider me as someone who have helped them solve a problem that was unsolvable. Another example of how, how would that materialize? If you visit factories and you look at a lot of the processes that they have, um, they're often using really simple mathematical equations um, to characterize their process. Okay, If you look at control engineering in general is a, is a very fascinating field of engineering and science, but it hasn't seen huge changes for decades now. Um, it has relied on some mathematical equations there are in nature very deterministic, very, very fixed. Um, but the world is not fixed and the world is very complex. We often cannot characterize it with simple equations. So in a lot of cases, they've reached their limit. They cannot optimize more. A great example is quality inspection. 
a lot of times, you know, products are being produced, whether it's, you know, textile um, or any other physical item. And then at some point, it gets to a human who's going to look at it, maybe under light and under, you know, magnifying glasses, but it's still the human eye who's going to look at these products. And you know what? There has been several studies that show that your best case scenario is that the human catches somewhere between 60 to 80% of errors in, in products and faults. Cameras don't get bored. So not just that, you can scale. Uh, many factories, you have to sample. You have to pick few few things to test every day for quality inspection. That doesn't mean we're going to get rid of the quality inspector. The quality inspector is still important, right? A lot of times the technology is going to assist them. A lot of times they're still going to do some quality inspection manually, but to a large extent, you can put cameras that will look at these products and you know, zoom in and figure out what's happening. And the cool thing about it is not only are you going to catch a defect after it has happened, sometimes you can start predict that you're about to see defects um, or you catch a defect early on that it does not become a problem. Um, in one of the factories I visited in China, they were producing fabric and um, they had a problem if they had an oil spill, the entire roll of the loom would become garbage. Um, so that has an environmental impact that has an impact on the factory itself, losing so much money um, and it could put them you know, into bankruptcy. Putting cameras and catching an oil spill early on meant you would lose you know, maybe an inch or two <laughs> instead of losing you know, hundreds of yards. So all of those technologies are really filling in gaps that exist, not replacing a system and are helping to assist in places where there are no solutions and AI is able, uh, whether you know through cameras or other sensors, to fill in those gaps. How can companies that rely on the edge put that AI to work strategically for their needs? It really starts with the developer and my definition of developer is again, very inclusive. I think AI is marching towards being something um, that any human being is going to be able to interact with and make better. There are some tools that us Intel are putting forward, whether through um, OpenVINO or One API, um, or even tools like Edge Insights for Industrial. But getting your hands dirty with with code and testing what you can do with AI and how it's going to work for you is really important. I am very optimistic. I feel like. The more people actually play with AI, the better AI is going to be. And then the better for us as, uh, as, as professionals, but also as humans on this earth, the more good things we can do with this tool. And we've been talking a lot about how AI is shaping the edge. I'm curious how you see the edge and the workflows of the edge changing and improving AI but not only for those edge workflows, but also for other use cases where AI is applicable. At the beginning of this chat, we started by talking about, hey, you know, it used to be that compute is so important that you took data to compute. And now we're bringing compute to data. And it's it's not that simple um, as a matter of fact, because we have been bringing data into one location, one central location, one rack of servers, one entity, whatever it is. The huge majority of AI innovation had made that assumption, had made the assumption that I can see all the data, right? I am the toddler and you're going to show me all the images and I'm going to be able to say, um, this is a cat versus a dog. Um, now, when you bring AI to the edge, 
And you're not bringing racks of servers to, the, to put them at the edge. You're bringing what we call distributed compute, lots and lots of nodes, which means AI needs to know how to use those resources, how to use the data that is distributed across those resources. So there will be, and there is already today, a lot of work um, around how AI needs to change to support a lot of those use cases and, and mature from an edge perspective. Um, you know, today AI at the edge is to a large extent still in its infancy. Um, we have seen some success stories, but I know a lot of, a lot of customers uh, still struggle, still, you know, get stuck in that POC phase. Um, we'll, we'll all as a community have to continue to innovate and grow in this space. Obviously, you know, thinking about return on investment is important, but AI as well needs to change to support some of these um, use cases. All right, Rita, I think on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Any final thoughts here to leave our audience with on the intersection of AI at the edge? Um, you know, this has been great. I'm, I'm glad I was able to, you know, geek out here today with everybody. Um, Gotta love it. Yeah, I think this is exciting times in, in so many domains. Um, and I can't wait to see what else us as humans are going to innovate at uh, with AI at the edge. Fantastic. Rita Wuhabi, thank you so much for your time today. Again, for our audience, we've been chatting with Rita Wuhabi, Senior Principal Engineer with Intel's Internet of Things Group, specifically their Industrial Solutions Division. And Rita, if folks want to tap into some more of your great thought leadership and expertise, they want to get in touch or just learn a little bit more about Intel's role in this uh, connection, intersection of AI and the edge. How can they do so? Yes, please visit us. Uh, visit our Intel software website. Uh, look for One API or OpenVINO. Both are, hopefully, you'll find very useful to your needs in building applications and use cases. And uh, I personally would love to hear from you as well. Feel free to reach out directly to me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look me up. I have a very unique last name. I promise I'm the only one. All right, Rita, thank you again for being with us today. Uh, this has been so great. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And I want to thank our audience as well for tuning into The Edge and Beyond. Again, the series that makes sense of use cases across industries brought to you by Intel's IoT Group. Don't forget to subscribe to hear more from the Intel Internet of Things Group. You can do so by going to our website, intel.com, for more thought leadership, as well as subscribing to The Edge and Beyond on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of To the Edge and Beyond. Thank you.